The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Anti-Modernist Reader on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and today I am joined by Father Anthony Chicada, editor of the Anti-Modernist Reader. Father, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Stephen, as usual. Always a pleasure. We just recently recorded the Zero episode introducing this book, and we're on to Chapter 1. And Chapter 1 is actually taken from a pamphlet that uh, Father wrote many moons ago. Uh, and it was called The New Mass versus the Traditional Mass, and that's the title of our episode today. Uh, rather an obvious theme, I suppose, Father, but can you tell us about, uh, I guess, 1988, way back uh, in, in, in the 80s, we first saw this template? Well, actually, if I can make bold with a, a uh, correction, uh, the, and actually, the article is initially called Welcome to the uh, Traditional Latin Mass. And the story behind it actually goes way behind, way, way, way back from 1988. Um, when I um, was ordained a uh, priest in 1977, uh, you would get people who would be new to the traditional mass. They, w- they would come out of curiosity, and they'd wonder what exactly some of the, the issues were. Uh, the with the traditional mass versus the uh, the new mass, so it, it it occurred to me from the beginning that there should be some sort of a, a simple explanation, a pamphlet, uh, which is what we used in in uh, those antediluvian days before the internet to communicate with people that we could we could hand to them that would in a, a simple way uh, outline the differences between the two rites. Well. When I uh, arrived at Oyster Bay Cove in 1979, I came across a uh, pamphlet that uh, had the title Welcome to the Traditional at Mass. It was uh, put together by a man named Donald Fons. Uh, Don was a former uh, redemptor seminarian who'd become a a traditionalist. He lived in, in Walnut Creek, California, and he went to the uh, mass center there that was run by one of the first priests of the society in St. Pius X in the United States, Father Gregory Post. Yeah, Father Post is actually still in the society, although I'm, I, I think he's out of California now. But uh, uh, Don was a uh, very good writer, so he wrote a, a booklet that introduced people to the differences between the traditional Latin Mass and the New Mass. It was uh, very clearly written and and, uh, very nicely illustrated. Uh, The difficulty with it at that time was that it tended to 
uh, as most of the traditionalist literature did that talked about the new mass, talk about the question of, of for you and for many and about the question of the validity of the um, uh, new, ma- uh, new mass and basically leave, it, uh, leave the issue at that. It didn't really say too much about the uh, other doctrinal difficulties with the Latin Mass, or with the the, um, New Mass. So uh, I had this pamphlet sitting on my desk actually for a couple of years, uh, and uh, uh, trying to figure out how it could be revised or what could be done with it. Well, uh, what I did at a certain point in the 1980s is I decided that I would just write a, a pamphlet myself. Well, it turned out to be a, a rather uh, complex and, and time-consuming project, but uh, eventually by uh, 1988, by the time uh, we had, in, in fact, um, uh, left the Society of St. Pius X, I uh, managed to produce the first uh, edition of it. Uh, since then, it's gone through a number of uh, different uh, editions. We, we had to make some uh, changes uh, because of the uh, question of the indult mass and the appearance of the different traditionalist uh, or, uh, organizations in the Novus Ordo circle, such as the Fraternity of St. Peter. Um, then uh, there was the, the uh, issue in the uh, 90s under the influence of, of Ratzinger, um, the issue of new translations that were coming out. So a lot of the um, traditionalist literature objected to the new mass on the basis of uh, how the initial translations were really inaccurate renditions of the Latin, but that was being changed. And of course, then that issue had to be um, addressed as well. And then finally, there was the election of uh, Ratzinger as Benedict XVI and as his motu proprio in 2007. And that authorized worldwide the celebration of Mass according to the 62 Missal. So the, the subsequent editions of this little uh, booklet that started out in, in 1979 uh, underwent uh, a number of changes as the situation developed in the post-Vatican II Church. And as we also uh, discovered more and more about the uh, difficulties that uh, the new mass, uh, even in Latin, uh, presented. Well, and Father, you said 1988. Now, did you put this out before June of 1988 or after June of 1988? Uh, Actually, I don't remember. I think it was before June of 1988. Because I was going to say it might have become at least needed to be updated almost immediately after the, uh, the Ecclesia Dei uh, change. So it's interesting that you, you, you put together some timeless, or shall we say classic principles in this pamphlet, but the circumstances kept changing under, under your feet. And hence, the up, you, might, you had to keep up with the Novus Ordo by having your own updated pamphlet. Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It's our, our own sort of, I guess, a giornamento or uh, what would they call it? Theological evolution? Something like that. Well, but well, in any so event, it was utterly traditional. Anchorage. Right, we have the substantial anchorage of the 1988 edition, uh, and which we can say is pretty much unchanged, except for some uh, for some pictures. And again, as we've said before uh, in the zero episode, 
Of course, you can buy the Anti-Modernist Reader, and there's a link in the show notes. Uh, you won't be able to buy an autograph copy from Father Chikata anymore because all of those copies sold out in, in, in uh, 120 minutes. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, if you want to follow along, uh, you can just go to, uh, the, uh, to, go to traditionalmass.org, uh, and you can find this article on there. Yeah, as well as if you'd want to get uh, your hands on a pamphlet, I suppose you could just fill out uh, your information at sgg.org and you'll be emailed a welcome packet as I was uh, a, a long time ago in 2006 and receive uh, one of these pamphlets yourself. And that way you can get your hand on the original article uh, and and be part of the cool kids. So, Interesting. It, it has had uh, quite a, a, a circulation. It's never flagged in, in uh, popularity. We still get requests from it uh, from all over the um, all over the world. So uh, you know, apparently, it, it it still does have still does have an appeal to people. Yes, and it was one of those safe ways that you can read uh, some of Father Chikata's stuff without being associated with him and, and all of the horrible things that uh, might might come of being associated with a set of a content. Yes, naturally, you wouldn't want that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when I when I think about this pamphlet, Father, I really your your tone uh, can I say it's somewhat uh, it's somewhat like a horror movie because the the sense starts with. Um, I'm, you're talking to somebody, and I think the, 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 the listeners who are listening to the broadcast who are in the Novus Ordo, they'll read this and they'll feel comforted because you're talking to them on their level. So you're watching them through, here's what's going on in the traditional mass. I know you've never been here before, but I want to tell you a little bit about it. Let me tell you about how the new mass was created, which is what, which is what you go to. And then, and then there's a heading called Irreverence and Sacrilege. And at that point, the the story takes a marked turn for the worse, uh, and then you you end with uh, with a heading called an invitation. So we're we're going to get to all of those things today. But I just I want to remind our, our listeners. I know there's plenty of old hands that are members of the network that will say, Stephen, I I know this story. You know, we don't need to go over it again. That's fine. You you don't have to listen today. We have lots of other content, but it's always good to review. And for the new people, the people who are still working through the changes and have questions, this is a good opportunity to basically go through the major arguments one by one. Father's been doing it, and his pamphlet has been covering that since 1988. So, unfortunately, this is a radio program, so you can't see the contrasting pictures that Father has in this pamphlet. Uh, one is a sort of guitar mass in the round, not even in the round, it looks like it's in someone's living room. And then there's a picture of Father Chikata, I suppose, with darker and uh, more hair. Uh, at the <laughs> altar at their at their chapel in Sharonville, it looks a lot smaller than than the the chapel in Westchester. So I have to guess that this is not at the current uh, church location. And it does yeah, a very good it does a very good uh, contrast. You have these people sitting around uh, playing the guitar versus Father Chikata, uh, you know, facing and uh, preparing for mass or assist or 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 celebrating mass actually. So I suppose that's where you're starting, Father, is, is right away, I, anytime you've had people come to St. Gertrude's or wherever you've been for the first time, you know, what do they come up and tell you? Apart from the people who say, oh, you know, Father, I haven't seen this for 20 years. You know, what happens when the young people come up to you who've never seen it full stop? Yeah, the... Uh... 
I would have to say that the reaction is is pretty much the same. Someone who is is curious and of of goodwill comes to uh, a, a traditional mass. They've never experienced anything before, and one of the first things they tell you is, "Boy, it's so different." You know, it seems so so peaceful and so uh, uh, so spiritual, and that's the typical. Uh, kind of uh, remark that you get, or that it's, it, it, it seems so holy. So, and these are people who walk in off the street who don't really have a, some sort of a, a profound theological background, but right away they see, uh, they see that there's, there's a difference between what, uh, they've been getting in their parish church and, uh, what they see when they wander into the traditional mass. Well, and I suppose I can speak for myself. Uh, the reaction I had as someone who up till the 17th year of his life had only seen the Novus Ordo, be it ever so respectful within the, the milieu of the Norbertines or the, the Dallas Cistercians that I, I got a chance to witness, that it was night and day. Even a very humble, low, indult mass, which was the very first traditional mass I ever attended, I had the same reaction as all those young people that had attended. Other than I instantly knew that uh, something was was different. And, and you make this point right away. Uh, Father says, if you remove from public worship prayers and gestures that allude to a particular truth such as this, and this is referring to the real presence, you can be fairly sure that in time, worshipers will cease to believe in it. And I, and I wonder, at what point did that, that happen for us, Father, because as I say, my parents, uh, you could say, adhered to sort of conservative Catholicism, and they raised us uh, to believe these basic, some of these basic truths of the Catholic faith, even though we were situated in the Novus Ordo. So I think we were we in this crossover generation. At what point do you think that the Novus Ordo was so widespread that we had widespread loss of, of disbelief? Did it take 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Well, as as the older generation uh, uh, started to uh, die off or uh, really be converted to the changes, um, that, that it was it was a, a, a gradual process to the point where uh, by the time you get into the the uh, late eighties and the early nineties, you start seeing polls that reflect uh, opinion polls that reflect this. Uh, loss of uh, belief in something like the real presence among uh, Catholics who actually go to church. They they look upon it as uh, the the presence of Christ as uh, then as, as something uh, uh, merely symbolic uh, or um, analogical or something like that, where they 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 no longer actually uh, hold and and adhere to what the church adhered to before. But it's a gradual process, it's a gradual chipping away. And you uh, see how the, the, the praxis is used to uh, chip away at uh, belief and at, uh, at as, as what is revealed. It was an issue that we're talking about with regards to the, with regard to um, you know Francis's uh, program about marriage. That well, uh, the sure marriage is indissoluble, but then 
there are uh, pastoral ways of applying this principle to people who are in difficult situations, blah, blah, blah. But what you, uh, you have happen then over a period of time is that the, the principle ends up being elided and, and, and being uh, thrown down. So too with the question of, of uh, the real presence or the um, special nature of the, the, uh, the, the uh, priest at mass, what what his his function is, what his role is, all these things have uh, uh, underwent a, a change over a uh, period of time uh, with the liturgical changes. It's so uh, it's 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 something over a, a period of years, uh, maybe two decades, where um, uh, two two and a half decades after which it's the old belief is pretty much undermined and, and gone. Well, and Father Father cites a, a, a biography of Luther under a heading, Making Catholics Protestants, which might be the first thing to really unsettle you in reading this pamphlet. And it says, next came the reform of the liturgy, which touched the common man more intimately because it altered his daily devotions. He was being invited to drink the wine at the sacrament to take the elements into his own hands, to commune without previous confession, to hear the words of institution in his own tongue, and to participate extensively in sacred song. So Father goes on to claim that we see these changes that sound familiar to us in Luther, and that this is what Catholics were being prepared for. But you then make the point, Father, that in order to understand that, we we have to go back further and beyond this uh, point to Vatican II. And again, assuming that our audience knows about the existence of Vatican II and knows some of its uh, points, I think it, it is helpful to, to, to say that immediately you, you point to the fruits and you give some statistics. You might share some of those statistics as to judging Vatican II by its fruits. Well, we were uh, told, of course, myself having uh, actually lived through this this area, that it was going to produce all sorts of really wonderful fruits, that uh, the people were going to be drawn to the Catholic Church, that the liturgy would become much more popular and much more comprehensible um, for people that we would reach uh, more and and more people throughout the world. But uh, what, in fact, happened, and again, this is something one... Uh, the process once uh, started to see uh, take place almost immediately is that um, you have that vocations uh, started to dry up, vocations to the priesthood. Uh, I remember uh, all the incidences of of, uh, priests quitting the priesthood uh, during the post-Vatican II era, uh, the seminaries being down, uh, closing down and, and uh, emptying out. Uh, both of the seminaries that uh, I studied at, the um, uh, Prep Seminary High School in Milwaukee and the uh, Seminary College, both of those institutions, uh, you know, bit the dust uh, very soon. The big religious orders uh, that were very into the idea of uh, Vatican II and the so-called renewal and and, and change, uh, started to uh, uh, nosedive, and, and uh, nuns left uh, were leaving right and left, mostly, I guess, to the left, which is where they ended up. And then uh, you get to a certain point where there's no... Um, respect anymore for the church's moral teachings. Uh, by 2000, um, 
you, you find that 85% of Catholics uh, deny that artificial contraception was morally wrong, and then um, uh, that 65 of them believe that Catholics can divorce and remarry. So what you end up with is is this 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 process that has started in the 1960s that has all of these fruits that uh, are terrible that are poison for the faith. So it's it's the the liturgical changes uh, we situate in. Um, uh, the context of that. Well, and Father, you point out if we don't want to stretch, I, I don't want to stretch the, the fruits and, and the plant analogy too much, but we can we can see that we have bad fruits or no fruits from, shall we say, bad bad fertilizer, and there is a whole lot of bull probably being put into this tree, and, and you identified two particular ones. Obviously, Vatican II has a, a lot of bad principles. But you point towards ecumenism and modernism. And again, just as a point of review for our newer listeners, can you define those for us? So when you talk about uh, ecumenism, this is generally the uh, principle that seeks to put Catholicism uh, together with non-Catholic religions. So uh, the the uh, idea is to reduce Christianity um, to a series of uh, necessary common truths that everyone has, uh, that all who call themselves Christians supposedly believe, uh, and other things uh, such as things that the Catholic Church teaches about different doctrines, these can be uh, ignored as non-essential. So on one hand, you have this this idea of accommodation to false religions. Uh, on the other hand, uh, along with this is modernism. And the heresy of modernism teaches that the truth changes from uh, age to age. The truth evolves, and that uh, what you see uh, proclaimed as truth in one age by the Church uh, is looked at from a different perspective, under different circumstances, and uh, uh, therefore has to uh, evolve to meet the uh, principles of the modern world and a modern philosophy. So you ha- have, have those uh, two general principles that are behind Vatican II and behind what uh, came from it. When it comes to the uh, liturgical uh, reform, uh, the difficulties with the liturgical reform, the uh, traditionalist um, writings initially tended, to, as I said, to concentrate on the invalidity idea and on the uh, other idea of the new mass as an ecumenical celebration. But uh, left out of the equation in much of the early writing was the the idea of modernism, the evolution of dogma, and and how that was uh, embodied in the new mass and was uh, used to spread the uh, these these modernist ideas throughout the whole world. So while people realized that yes, it's it's ecumenical, the uh, they didn't latch on right away to the the, the modernist problem with it. Well, and as you say, the liturgical outgrowth is is what is the the point of the pamphlet. Obviously, the the council is a larger a larger issue. But if you start mm-hmm. with the principles of ecumenism and modernism within the council, 
how do you apply ecumenism and modernism to the liturgical reform? Uh, Father makes this point on two levels. One, ecumenism, because you want to satisfy Protestants. You need to make things a bit more amenable to our, shall we say, separated brethren. I can't really say that with a straight face. And mm-hmm. then um, modernism leads us to to simply getting rid of or changing things to, to please modern man. Now, at this point in the pamphlet, a, a skeptical reader or someone who's starting to get a little bit shocked by what you're saying, Father might say, well, how do I know this isn't just some conspiracy theory of Father Chicada? I mean, where did he get this? Uh, where did he get these ideas? Well, what you do is is you have to look to the um, writings of the people who are responsible for the creation of the new mass, and they will tell you uh, that uh, these were the the uh, two principles. Bugnini, uh, who was in charge of the reform, for instance, said in the Osservatore in Osservatore Romano, the Vatican newspaper, right right away, um, in an article in the sixties that he wanted to remove from the uh, liturgy, from the reform liturgy that he was producing, anything that would give uh, offense to their separated brethren. So you have your ecumenism idea there, and then uh, elsewhere you find in the the writings of those who produced the reform the idea that we really have to make this accommodation to modern man, that we have new values and, and new perspectives. So we have to remove from the liturgy ideas that uh, do not please modern man, so such as ideas such as hell or punishment for sin or separation from the world and so on. So that you get um, them speaking about this rather openly, but remember, again, these days it was much more difficult to get this sort of information. You had to, uh, you know, uh, find the obscure liturgical um, uh publications that these people were writing for, and you had to understand Latin or Italian or German sometimes to figure out what they were talking about. But at least as, as, in terms of the time, they were quite open about what they were up to. And I'm, I'm just sort of boggled, Father, at the, uh, you know, the, the leisure of my generation contemplating research without Google Translate or, or Google itself, and it just sounds, <laughs> just sounds so tiring. Although, to be fair, I, I did experience a little bit. Of, I, I know about this ancient invention called the card catalog I once used at this place called a library that had books and not computers. In it. So as you say, if you don't understand those languages or you don't travel to these distant places to get your hands on the source documents, you can get away with this for a long enough time until I, I, I hesitate to use the democratization of information, but basically uh, making it more widely available uh, people can get in. People, so I say, troublemakers like yourself can get in and look at the text and uh, start to draw uh, cr- stronger conclusions, as you say, from the people who are behind it themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it, it's sort of indictment. So, so then Father goes on to talk about the uh, the definition of the mass that was within the 1969 general instruction and. I suppose as a, a testament to how poorly catechized I was as a Novus Ordo, challenged myself to, to think about whether the first time I read this without a commentary, I was able, as a conservative Novus Ordo, to point out why this was heretical, not just weak. And the definition is, the sacred assembly or gathering together of the people of God with a priest presiding to celebrate the memorial of the Lord 
because Novus Ordos are not necessarily brought up with these dark black and white lines, I think a Novus Ordo person could read this and say, all right, Father, the sacred assembly or gathering together of the people of God with a priest presiding to celebrate the memorial of the Lord, it doesn't say that there isn't a sacrifice, you know, um, and are all these things going on at Mass. What's wrong with this? <laughs> well, it, as you say, that is the uh, that would be the typical reaction, and uh, which show that uh, someone has been marinated, as it were, in the uh, in the world of the Novus Ordo. But the, the primary uh, definition and understanding of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is a um, is a sacrifice uh, offered to Almighty God. And that's the consistent um, teaching of the church. What you have is the modernist method of uh, skipping around uh, the definition of, of uh, an essential definition of what something is to give you a little um, uh, uh, to convey another idea to you. And the idea that this conveys to you is well. Uh, what you see is what you get. So you have an assembly there, and people are gathered to celebrate the, the Lord's memorial, and that's what you get, and that's kind of the only really important thing about it. So the other doctrine um, uh, recedes into the background. Well, and I suppose that, that at, at this point, we can go into some of the things that were, were changed, and we should start right away with the, the penitential right. And I thought, again, as I was pre- preparing for the episode, Father, I, I had to go back. And it's one of those unfortunate unfortunate things when you come uh, to Catholicism from the Novus Ordo that I, I'm sure all Catholics like to think fondly, this is the season for First Communion. Yes. And, and I'm sure that, that any Catholic likes to think back to, with happiness, hopefully, to First Communion and those days. And I thought, especially in the season, and as I was prepping for this this episode, I thought, well, I can't, I can't really look back because I'm not certain that I received First Communion. Uh, I'm not certain that it was a validly celebrated Mass. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that uh, it was a validly ordained priest, and and so I've sort of shut out a large part of my adolescence, uh, the, the the memory of uh, my Catholic memory, because of this. However. <laughs> For our listeners and for purposes of the episode, I, I went back to dredge up some of these memories, and I thought to myself of how robotic sounding some of these things are. I, I you know, I, I'm thinking of it says your penitential right, and I can hear the priest saying, "You came to call sinners, Lord have mercy," and then the audience, the audience slash congregation says, "Lord have mercy." Uh, you you did you see, you did such and such. Christ have mercy. Christ have mercy. And it's it's we all. You know, whether we were fervent or not, I'm not saying that everyone was, you know, bored and, and not engaged. I, I think there were people like our family. We were we were trying to. In fact, I even followed along in my missalette, you know, which which gives the lie to the fact that because it was in the vernacular, I was able to understand Catholics, you know, can't break away from their training. And we were still all fall. I was following along in my missalette. That's what my father had taught me to do. But this even right away, you can see in this penitential ride, I could say it is truly penitential to have to sit through something like that. <laughs> but at least it's short. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, yeah, the, um, it, uh, the uh, penitential right, uh, as uh, mentioned in the, in, in, uh, the pamphlet and elsewhere, actually, the common penitential right was something that the Protestants came up with in the 16th century. So you had... Uh, uh, 
in the traditional Mass, what you had is the cathedral and everything, was really a, a priest-oriented prayer of uh, preparation, prayers of, 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 um, uh, of worthiness. So this was replaced with a, a more... Um, with with a common penitential rite, and this again was to make the uh, make another theological point that this this uh, mass is now offered, as it were, by everyone on a more or less equal level, the people and the priest. So that's why we have this common penitential rite. So it's it's telegraphing that idea to you. The second thing is the offertory, and this was probably what hit me in the gut a lot more than any other part of the Mass, was when I first read the, the Sushi Pei Sancte Pater, the, the first prayer in, in the offertory in the traditional Mass, and realized this prayer was gone. And I think, and I, I can't remember who said this, I don't remember exactly who this is attributed to, Father, but that the, the entire Eucharistic doctrine of the church is contained within that first sushipe prayer and no surprise it's missing and in its place we have some prayers which some of our listeners might not know where those prayers came from uh yes the um uh, there was a um uh, writer in the 50s whose name uh, escapes me who pointed that out that uh it, it is like a little summa uh, of of the uh, catholic doctrine on the uh, uh, on the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And so it is a, uh, uh, a very important part of the Mass in terms of the, the, the doctrine that it expresses and the description that you give you that gives you of what actually is going on in, in the real, in the supernatural order. And in its place, uh, we have some prayers, the the origin of which may be unknown to most people. We we just say it. Uh, blessed are and it ends with uh, blessed are. Well, it starts with blessed are you, Lord, a God of all creation. Uh, what is it? Through your goodness, we have this bread to offer. Uh, yes, some, mm-hmm. something work of human hands, which is uh, which may have been a good title for a book, I suppose. Uh, 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 it, it will it, it will become our our spiritual food. I, I, and I'm for Nova Sordos, I'm sure you know it a lot better. It's been a long time since I've heard it. So I don't remember it verbatim, but where did those prayers come from? Father? Uh, those prayers were uh, actually a, a Seder blessing, uh, the uh, Jewish table prayers. And those were, um, modified and, and, uh, used to replace the uh, sushi pay, which w- was a, a clear expression of Catholic doctrine. But you have to remember too the if you talk ecumenism that obviously the um uh, language of the parasushipe was uh, such that it was uh, quite quite offensive to Protestants, so it had to go well, and I suppose you don't you don't have to go back i mean you're not even going back to Protestantism you're going back to people who don't even believe that Jesus is the messiah yeah that's uh, so right you're yeah. you're definitely i mean consider your sources for this. We then move away from one single Roman canon, and we move to the era of the Eucharistic prayer, but not just the idea of having different options, but rather the entire posture of that part of the Mass is different. Those of us who go to the traditional Mass, we're used to it being basically completely deathly quiet at that point. You are required by rubrics to use a different tone of voice than you use for other parts of the Mass, whereas this has always been included. Uh, we know which which prayer the priest is is reading because we we let's say we're following along in our missalette, but it's it's done out loud, 
And also the words of consecration are, are, are not separated out. Can you explain to our listeners what, what the institution narrative is and how that relates to the words of consecration and why that's different substantially? So the uh, idea there is is uh, of consecration of the mass. And the traditional theology is that, is that uh, the priest is reciting uh, here and now in the person of Christ is uh, effecting the uh, change of the bread and wine into the body and blood of of Christ. So uh, something is is uh, ha- happening here and now in the real order. The uh, this idea of, of of transformation was something that was repugnant to Protestant theology and to modernist theology uh, as well. So they uh, used the uh, term for it uh, institution narrative. In other words, the uh, the minister or the priest is telling a story of what occurred long ago. And he's he's sort of repeating this little story for your benefit, and uh, I uh, can testify from from my own experience as as a church organist who used to um, um, go to different parishes to substitute for other organists and and uh, to to uh, play for mass, uh, provide the music for mass is is that the younger clergy in fact did follow this. Um, uh, norm that uh, the way they they carry themselves, they were uh, telling you a story at the Novus Ordo, telling you a very nice story. So there's that shift again away from Catholic theology of the real presence and transubstantiation. Well, but Father, you have to say if, if you're going to tell a story, you might as well get the the actual text correct, right? If you're going to quote our Lord, you might as well quote him accurately. And in some translations, we we saw our our Lord's words changed. Now, I remember being a, a young, impressionable trad, uh, you know, many, many moons ago. And one of the, the bona fides, bona fides of, of going to one of these trad masses would be to see one of these older gentlemen with a very proud pro multis pin on his jacket with his tie. And I always just sort of, you know, I, I thought at the time, I just sort of chuckled to myself and I thought, you know, these people are, are standing up for pro multis, uh, you know, in the country of bumper stickers. But it is it is really important because I had conservative Novus Ordos like the Norbertines and, and others tell me that this was not a substantial change, that this was, you know, this is translation, that that Hebrew, that Aramaic didn't necessarily have a distinction for this word, and neither did Greek. And ergo, you know, we could take that uh, to also not need to have a signification for us. So on behalf of anyone who may have had the same, shall we say, explanation given to them. Father, how would you respond? Well, uh, first of all, uh, that was a big issue, that um, in into English and into most modern languages, the, the word uh, uh, multis and the word of words of, of consecration over the chalice were changed from uh, uh, for many to for all. So uh, there definitely was a change there, and it was done with a uh, in the translation with uh, the uh, intention, in effect, of of uh, altering the uh, meaning of the uh, the traditional understanding of uh, the, the the text of consecration. There's a difference between many, obviously, and uh, and all. 
So uh, this uh, the idea is uh, that we're introducing here this this idea of uh, ecumenism and the uh, idea of, of the of the wearing down of of distinction between members of the church and those who are not members uh, of the church. So all of this is sort of uh, uh, packed into it. The difficulty uh, with uh, that particular issue is, is this, that, that um, while it is very true that in the vernacular languages, in Latin, of course, the original Latin version of the Novus Ordo remained uh, entirely the same. So you could not make that particular argument, as it were, against the Latin version of uh, the Novus Ordo. So it certainly was the 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 uh, intention of the creators of the Novus Ordo to change that uh, uh, the the meaning of that phrase when uh, it was rendered into the vernacular. Father, do you agree that this is the smoking gun within the liturgical reform in the same way that subsistit in is a smoking gun within Vatican? And not not saying there's only one smoking gun, but one can point to and say, look, here's this you know a substantial change that was done for no reason, and then it's tried to like, be excused like, well, you're overreacting. The conservatives would always put to me that I'm overreacting, like, oh well, you know, subsistence, Stephen, you can say, you know, it means the same thing, and I was I was always puzzled by this defense of something that was quite obviously a, an, a, an intentional change. It wasn't as though they didn't have a thesaurus with them that day, and they just decided they would go for the next closest word. This was, you know, propaganda. Well, sure. I mean, they, they, told, they told us, but again, you'd have to read the writings. They told us that this was correct, that, that this, the, the um, people who were in charge of liturgical reform said that this is really what they wanted in the uh, vernacular. So from that point of view, it's, it's, it is definitely a smoking gun as regards the meaning. And as regards the overall sense of the form, uh, they uh, took uh, words uh, that uh, were not uh, considered part of the form in the uh, traditional Latin Mass, and then uh, made them part of this narrative of institution. So what you get is you get a narrative, in effect, with a quote in it. So, I mean, they're, they're uh, footprints of, of what they were up to. It's really all over the place. Father makes some other points in the pamphlet about uh, a removal of veneration of the saints, uh, reference to the faithful departed, and negative theology. But because we were recording this episode, uh, around the same time that Father and I have done a trad controversies on Holy Week, where we talk on a lot about these issues, and a work of human hands episode, where we talk about the oration and a lot of these. I'm going to defer you, I'm going to refer you to those two episodes to hear more about the loss of those elements, because we still have a lot to cover, and uh, I don't want to have the episode run too long. I want to get us to the fruits of this. So we talked about the fruits of the changes in, in a long, uh, in a sort of long way, when Father was referring to vocation loss and, and nuns leaving, when we when we look at this, you know, the fruits of uh, of the liturgical reform, I suppose part of it has to come from from just horror stories. And, and Father, I suppose you've been out of it a little longer because you saw the Novus Ordo at its very inception, and mm-hmm. I came to it when it was in full swing. And so, and I even feel my horror stories are are somewhat mild by comparison. I remember one time there was a group of us 
college students, conservative, you know, Nova Sordo college students. And we had taken a day trip somewhere in New Hampshire and we needed to go to mass. It was Sunday. We found a, a parish somewhere and we stopped in and much to our surprise at the very end, we were treated to some liturgical dance. And keep in mind that all of us were conservative. Most of us were digging our fingernails into each other's arms to make sure we wouldn't laugh uh, in front of everybody because we thought everyone in the audience, you know, was enjoying this. Uh, On the other complete other side, uh, when I I first moved to the United States in 1988 and I was around nine or 10 years old and I didn't realize at the time the parish that I attended was called St. Rita in Dallas. And it was a very progressive, very, very progressive parish. both school and church. And I I wouldn't know that as a child, but looking back, I look at the things that we did. One of the things that we did in religion class was to compose a mass and uh, each, everyone would have, someone would play the priest, someone play the lector. And, and the teacher even led by saying, you know, unfortunately, you know, due to directives, girls are not allowed to play the role of priest, uh, but I hope this may change in the future. And you would think this is 1988, this is 1989. uh, And, and this is still going on. So, we would have that, and during the the uh, prayers of the faithful, we would have uh, people extemporaneously shout out. And we always knew there was this one old guy uh, who was on the right-hand side, and when pe- the, the time would be given for people, he would pipe up and he'd say, for an increase in religious vocations, we pray to the Lord. And it was sort of like everyone would wait. For this guy, because we knew he was going to say that everyone gave him his space to say it. But other people would just sort of shout out these things. And it was it, it was really I look back at it now and it was extraordinary that that was my Catholic life that I thought of was my quote unquote Catholic life. And I laugh at it. Okay, I mean, I realized it was a Novus Ordo life and has nothing to do with Catholicism. But there are many people out there who are listening to this broadcast who you're def- you, I'm, I'm sorry to say you've been defrauded. And you need to you need to be woken up to the reality that this that has nothing to do with Catholicism. And I don't as, know. As, some, some as I'm listening to your 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 anecdote, though, it uh, makes me think. I wonder uh, how many of the people in your class who were subjected to this sort of um, religious formation at that period in time are practicing anything that even even resembles remotely the Catholic faith now. Because the, the, in uh, my own experience, uh, the young people who are brought up with this uh, sort of nothing version of, of uh, Catholicism, the, the feel-good version of Catholicism where there's not too much knowledge, certainly, of, of the faith and certainly not much inculcated to you in the way of, of Catholic morality or Catholic liturgy, uh, generally end up not um, even self-identifying as Catholics anymore. So it's, it, it's um, uh, I guess, gets us back to the issue again, a little bit of, of uh, the, uh, the fruits of all of these changes. You know, the, the, that it would be very interesting to find out what happened to your classmates. Well, and I, I'm sure that my, my fourth grade religion teacher would feel like she really hadn't done her job because look what she's created or helped to create, <laughs> I, I suppose. But I, I, I have to imagine, Father, that an organ player wasn't really the mode after the changes, I mean, you must have found yourself unemployed. Uh, well, <laughs> or were you thinking of taking up guitar, maybe? <laughs> guitar never appealed to me for some reason. Well, actually, the reason I took up the organ, in addition to having an inclination to it, uh, 
toward music was because of the um, awful liturgical music that started up uh, right away in the early 1960s. In fact, I even um, studied musical composition uh, so that I could uh, learn how to write uh, decent liturgical music. So it, it uh, the guitar was never a temptation. Is I, I made it a point in eight years in uh, the Novus Ordo Seminary that never opened my mouth once during one of those wretched guitar pieces. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I suppose then we we see that there's there's a couple a couple points of objection. So, Father, people are going to to say that well, I have access to a traditional mass. Father, I go to the Fraternity of St. Peter, I go to the Institute of Christ the King, and if and when the SSPX ever signs an agreement, I go to Society of St. Peter. I go to these places where uh, things are, are, are handled correctly. And, and that's one school of thought. The other school of thought, which I've heard often, even from some of our listeners, uh, people who write to us, to say, well, you know, I'm staying and I'm fighting within the structures of the church, and I suppose there's there's a couple things wrong with with both of those approaches, Father. But um, I'd like I'd like you to to share your thoughts on on why those are are not great approaches. First of all, when you end up um, in uh, groups like the uh, Fraternity of St. Peter's, uh, supporting initiatives like that, uh, naturally you end up uh, being neutralized, which was uh, uh, which I think is a, a very good word. You uh, end up in uh, practice accepting the underlying tenets of the Novus Ordo religion, uh, and you become, you become a part of that, and your, si- your silence, in effect, ends up sort of being purchased by the uh, permission that uh, you get from the modernists to stay in your corner and to have your uh, nice liturgical ceremonies. So it's, 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 you end up theologically being uh, bought off. Uh, if you end up in a group like the uh, Pius X Society, they, of course, still recognize the legitimacy of the modernist hierarchy. And, and uh, this is something this leads to uh, theological absurdities, the idea that uh, the people who um, are, are in fact preaching these these heresies and who've instituted these these evil laws and these these harmful ways of of, of uh, worship could somehow continue to possess the uh, authority from Jesus Christ himself so you you run into a uh, you run into a problem uh, there as, as well and in both cases uh, SSPX or indult type of groups you ultimately end up reducing the liturgical problem to a question of the mass that we can have uh, an approved mass um, here a latin mass off in the corner without worrying about the larger uh, theological issues the larger theological problem that Vatican II uh, produced the new mass uh, that both these groups reject is uh, a product of uh, a product of, of larger theological problems, and simply by reducing the issues to the mass and staying over in your own corner or getting approval somehow for your own apostolate, you lose the rest of that perspective. Now, while the approach may be flawed. 
Father, would you agree that it's motivated by a Catholic spirit because uh, a Catholics want approval? We, we want to do things with permission. We don't want to go off and do our own things. So these people are, they're reacting with a Catholic spirit, but they're taking the wrong approach. Yeah, it, it, and that is, that's certainly true because we, we, all of us went through that. We had the, the, problem of of uh, authority like how can this be and uh, how can it be that our beloved holy father paul the sixth who's doing so much to um, defend the truths of the catholic faith how can it be that um uh you know the all of this stuff is is going he, on he, leave he, me alone he only knew it was going on yeah if if if, if if the pope only knew so uh, you uh, uh you uh, end up in that sort of in that sort of quandary, and this was the the problem for many priests from the older generation who retained the uh, traditional Catholic faith uh, in their hearts. That well, they did not they they knew they had to have permission. They had to be under the local bishop. This had been drummed into them, and they couldn't possibly go against this. So you know, I have uh, a. Um, uh, sympathy, certainly, for uh, people who are starting out trying to figure this out, because I, I certainly was in, in their position at one point uh, myself. But, uh, you know, you have to look at the principles that the Church has laid down and uh, look at them logically and think them out and, uh, and apply them. And eventually you get to a correct conclusion. What about the approach that I'm I'm staying to fight within the structures, and I'm I'm fighting the good fight. How about that approach? Well, um, uh, first of all, it doesn't work, <laughs> and that's something that we know from experience. This has never succeeded. You uh, end up being um, giving uh, legitimacy to those people who are uh, spreading error, and nothing is ever done anyway. Um, uh, uh, certainly not. You can see the, I, I remember trying to fight against liturgical abuses, um, with a, uh, conservative priest at, at the seminary. We compiled dossiers of the different uh, liturgical abuses and violations of the rubrics that went on and, uh, you know, presented them to the, um, uh, actually to the chancellor of the archdiocese, but nothing ever comes of that. Right, uh, no one was ever, uh, no one was ever reproached, uh, and the uh, liturgical abuses were allowed to go on. Uh, the same thing with the when in the new church when you uh, you know have petitions and fight against uh, so-called doctrinal problems uh, that uh, the the whip never truly is 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 uh, cracked. People are never. Uh, excommunicated from uh, the new church. So you're basically, you're wasting your time by saying you're staying on the inside and, and, and fighting. You're, you're, you're not fighting, you're surrendered, and um, uh, you're, uh, you're going to lose. And I, I think, too, Father, all the tactics you, you would use as a conservative, you'd, you'd see this family coming down the aisle to receive communion. The women are all strangely wearing these dresses, and one might even have a veil on. And for some reason, they're all moving towards Father's uh, communion line because they're not going to receive from one of these quote-unquote extraordinary ministers. And, and then you see the sort of horror on their face as Father, he's all, he's all done distributing communion, so he retires uh, from the rail. And now they're stuck because they're, they're heading towards Father's line and now these other Eucharistic ministers. And I remember looking over at this family and I'm thinking, well, what are they going to do? 
and they end up going right. Uh, oh, they, and, you know. and, and then my own, my own, uh, remember going to daily mass, uh, as the Romans say, you know, two cats and a dog, you know, daily mass in the Nova Sordo for me was, you know, 16 old people and me, the 17 year old. Mm-hmm. And one day after mass, the ponytailed father, Doug, and I'm not making that up. His name, he went by father, Doug. He, he, he decided that he was going to make an example uh, of the youngest person who, who dared to genuflect before receiving communion. I wasn't even doing the, the quick break your knees on and off bit. And he said, since the Second Vatican Council, uh, we don't do things like this. And then he looked directly at me and he says, you know, you don't need to you know, make a statement. Mass isn't about you. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, all I was trying to do, I was just sort of shocked and embarrassed. I'm 17 years old. All the old people are looking at me like I'm a like I'm a jerk. And I wait until everybody leaves uh, mass. And I just started crying. I started crying right there in church. And I was thinking, I was thinking to myself, like, what did I, you know, Lord, what did I do wrong? All I'm, you know, I I wasn't trying to, you know, draw attention to myself. I think I even went last in line. So I wouldn't hold up anybody because, you know, the most important thing is getting communion distributed as fast as possible. That's the, that's the big, that's the big value in the Novus Ordo, which only lasts 20 minutes anyway at a weekday mass. And, um, that was, that was one of those moments that I would share with, and I've shared it in other forums, but I, for those listeners who are in the Novus Ordo, you know, I, I bought into the stay within the structures thing too. And that's what I got. That's what I got. I'm not saying that we as Catholics aren't called to be humiliated, but I, I wonder, it's not just a matter of humiliation for someone younger. It, it, it may lead to questions about their faith that they're being reproached for simply trying to show reverence. And then they question, well, maybe I'm, you know, I'm overdoing it. I don't really need that. This is the part of the story, Father, and I want to remind our listeners that you you are listening to the Anti-Modernist Reader on the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. You can obtain permission by writing to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. Father, I alluded to earlier that you you had a horror story for us, and I suppose this is the, the dread for our Novus Ordo listeners who are going to come to the end of the story and say, well, Father, you're going to say, I, I, I don't need to go to Mass. What, what about Mass on Sunday? Where, where am I going to go? And you're not, you're not telling me I can't go to Mass anymore. I mean, I had to go to the Novus Ordo. And I suppose in another episode, we can address the, the question of validly ordained priest and validly mm-hmm. said Mass. But broadly speaking, what's the conclusion you're offering to people and, and why? Stay away from the Novus Ordo because it is uh, evil. Uh, that it it harms it is irreverent. Uh, it uh, is the presents the antithesis of what should be the Catholic faith. It's an offense to Almighty God, and there's also the question of of invalidity and of of uh, sacrilege. Now, this takes us back for a moment to what we uh, talked about before: that the inclination of, of people who have retained the uh, uh, Catholic faith vestiges of uh, at least large parts of the Catholic faith after Vatican II uh, have the idea that well you should your uh, the good Catholic is obliged to go to mass that it can't be a real Sunday without a mass that you're um, uh, committing a sin if you do not assist at mass so therefore I have to go to the the uh, mass that's uh, the Novus Ordo. Uh, even if it has all of these terrible things. But the idea is that uh, really the the law of uh, assistance at Mass is a uh, church law. Uh, that it's one of the uh, one of the commandments of 
church that tells us how to fulfill the commandment of the divine law to keep uh, the uh, to keep the Lord's day holy. Uh, so uh, that's one consideration that it's it's uh, a, a church law, and secondly, the purpose of the church law is to worship God in a, a worthy and true fashion, and you don't get that with the Noah's Ordo. So you stay away, as you would just stayed away if you were a Catholic in England uh, after the Protestants took over the churches there. That uh, you had no obligation whatsoever to assist at the Protestant service. You stayed away from it because it was uh, erroneous and heretical and offense to Almighty God. And it's the same principle that uh, uh, applies here. We're in a uh, Catholics find themselves in a bad situation. They would like to have access to uh, the Mass on a Sunday, but uh, they don't. So the, they're not bound by the commandment as, or by the, the law of the Church as long as they're in that particular situation. And uh, indeed, they would be forbidden to go by the divine law because uh, of what the Novus Ordo is. Well, what can they do instead, Father? Well, we had um, uh, Catholics would um, try to render holy the uh, Lord's Day by reciting the Rosary, by reciting different Mass prayers. Um, uh, sometimes in an area, families would gather to uh, do that, as was done, you know, when uh, the United States was a uh, was simply a missionary country. Uh, there are still people from uh, families that we have with assistant mass here who remembered uh, doing that as as um, kids when they didn't have access to a priest in a particular area. So uh, there was uh, there's that possibility now because of the wonders of the internet. Now you can actually assist it at uh, a mass and hear a sermon over the internet. It's not the same thing as uh, actually being present in terms of fulfilling your Sunday obligation, but it is a, a, a very good way of, of uh, sanctifying a Sunday, and it's one of the benefits of our technological age. So we, we webcast live our all of our Sunday Masses from St. Gertrude the Great. It certainly isn't your father's trad movement anymore, is it, Father? <laughs> no, it certainly isn't. <laughs> Well, and, and with that, I, I would encourage our listeners to to visit sgg.org to find out about those webcasts. If you want to get your hands on the original pamphlet that inspired part of the articles that led to a book, uh, you can uh, apply for that by, by asking to be on Father's mailing list and re- re- requesting the pamphlet. Uh, or you can get a copy of the Anti-Modernist Reader uh, available at truerestorationpress.com. As always, Father, thank you so much for your time, and we look forward to having you on future episodes of this series. Always a pleasure, Stephen. God bless you all. We want to remind our listeners that if you have any questions for Father or feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at antimodernist at truerestoration.org, and you can send your comments and questions there. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.